Hey everyone, this is a Barclay Damon Live broadcast of the CyberSip, practical talk about cybersecurity. I'm your host, Kevin Sapansky. Let's talk. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Kevin Sapansky, and today we're back with Nick DeCesare. We're going to talk about the waves of a data breach. As you may remember, Nick is the founding member and co-leader of the Barclay Damon cybersecurity team, and he works tirelessly counseling clients on best practices to maintain not only electronically stored information, but he also works with clients as the breach coach or quarterback when the inevitable breach happens. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Nick, welcome back to CyberSip. Thanks, Kevin. So I wish I could claim credit for the waves of the data breach thing, but that's not mine. That's yours. So we're going to talk about the three principal waves that every organization encounters when they do find themselves dealing with and responding to a data breach. But first, tell us a little bit about how, how did you come up with that and why is the wave metaphor so fitting in your view? So, I, you know, after doing uh, the breach response uh, coaching for a number of years, I think it's just it's just the way it works. There's the crests of a lot of activity, a lot going on at the same time. It's very, you know, very chaotic. And then there will be a lull. And then there's another, you know, just another swell of, of activity that happens. Uh, and then another lull. And then, you know, another swell. So it's just the way it, it occurred to me. And, you know, unfortunately, I think there's a Somewhat of the connotation for me is, uh, you know, the client getting slapped by a wave at a couple different points in time that can be, you know, difficult to deal with. Uh, that, that's where I came up with it. And I think it's fitting because it's, you know, every breach I've done, you know, the, the facts have been different. The customers or the clients have been different. The data they have has been different. But the kind of overall way that the breach response moves is almost always the same. And it's always these three major kind of events with activity going on the entire time. But it, like I said, it swells up, slows down, swells up, slows down, and there's waves. We're going to deal with each one as they, as they come in. Right. And I think the other thing to, to keep in mind for those organizations that have never been through it is there are these periods of rests. And if you, you have the right partners, uh, the right counsel and forensic teams, these are organizations that have been through it before, and that's all good. But the other thing to keep in mind is that you may, as an organization, learn about the incident or data breach in a very sudden manner and at a very odd hour. The process of responding often takes time. It can sometimes be a matter of days, but sometimes, Nick, we've seen weeks and even months before the entire process plays out from initial attack through decision whether notice needs to be given to affected individuals and and regulatory yeah. investigations commence. Yeah, and a, a lot of that, you know, timing is going to depend on a lot of factors. It's going to depend on the type of attack, the severity of the attack. It's going to depend on some of the stuff we've talked about in the past, like you know, how prepared were you for this in terms of your own uh, policies, practices that you had in place, you know, knowing your data was uh, a big thing we talked about before. Um, all those things are going to determine, uh, you know, how long it takes between these, you know, the, the, the waves. And 
big thing that a lot of our clients have have trouble with is you know this the, the need for some immediate you know there there isn't often an immediate response. The forensic people need to you know, spend a lot of time in the system looking for you know their term of art is artifacts. What happened? How did the bad guys get in? Uh, where did they go in your system once they were in there? Is there evidence that they were accessing data? Is there evidence that they took data out of your system? All of that takes time. And then when you even, even when you get to the next step, doing notification, you know, finding the information, uh, you know, the private information, protected information for different individuals and determining, okay, what law applies to that individual? What are the rules for notifying uh, you know, those individuals, which can be different state by state. As much as, as, as everybody wants to push through it as quickly as possible, uh, you know, there are going to be these lulls where you know, just data has to be collected, work has to be done. Everybody wants to get through it as quickly and efficiently as possible. And again, to our you know, last episode when we talked about preparation, done those preparation steps, it's going to be a lot smoother of a ride on these waves than if these happened. I was just thinking the same thing. And for those of you that haven't seen it, check out the first episode Nick and I did together, Four Keys to Preparing for a Data Breach. Uh, and you'll know exactly what he means. So you alluded to some of the, the issues we're going to talk about now, but I really want to break it down wave by wave and just talk with you about the, the early waves of a data breach. And I think we're going to cover initial attack through regulatory investigation, maybe even some third-party claims. But let's start with the first one, Nick. Tell us about the first wave of a data breach. Let's, let's assume a scenario that involves a ransomware attack, because I know that we want to talk about special issues with ransomware and email data later. So uh, give us a scenario of a ransomware attack and talk about the first wave of response. Yeah, so and ransomware, we're talk about some special issues we've been seeing recently, but ransomware is, you know, by far the most common attack we're seeing uh, these days in the past two years, probably. It's it's the the number one uh, issue that our clients are contacting us about when there is uh, an incident. And and typically it starts when somebody goes to log into the system and instead of uh, getting their usual login window, they get a message saying, you know, we have your data encrypted, and if you want to get it back, uh, you got to pay us a million dollars or, or you know, something like that. Um, and and that, so that's the start of, of the wave. And again, if you've prepared well for that, your next step is going to be contacting all of the stakeholders who've been identified in your breach response policy. That'll be internal people, it'll be external people, outside counsel, a forensic group. Um, there may be have insurance, you might be contacting an insurance contact, and then all those people are going to get together, and it's going to be, okay, let's talk about, you know, let's identify the type of ransomware it is, is there any identifier that lets the forensic people know what they're dealing with. Uh, in ransomware cases, you'll often bring in a ransomware specialist who will have a lot of data about ransomware, different variants, how those criminals respond, uh, your chances of getting your data back code, all that kind of stuff is going to be considered in the initial discussion. How are we going to respond to this particular ransomware incident? Can we go without our data? Getting the forensic people in uh, immediately to try to identify, okay, 
figure out how they got into the system, can we figure out where they went into the system? They got to start getting as much data as they can, and so they can start processing that. Your legal account counsel is going to be looking at the situation, making sure that you know they're running the show. You kind of want your your outside legal counsel to be in control of the breach response because then you can try to protect as much as possible under uh, the attorney-client privilege for when we get to those later waves. All that is going to be going on, and again, this is going to be a very hectic time because you're going to want to. Try to get your system back because it's going to be impacting your business. Um, and you also have to start considering what are your legal obligations going to be and how are we going to deal with this ransom? You know, what are, we'll talk about this in a little bit, what would our, our backup situation look like? Are we able to get the business back up and running safely? Um, and again, some of that will be the friends of people identifying, okay, did they, did they get into our backup systems when we safely, you know, reinstall systems without there being a, a threat of reinfection. And then again, that and that ransomware expert might tell you, uh, be able to tell you based on the ransomware variant, um, this is what these guys typically do. These are the files they're typically installing, that sort of thing, so that you know you can try to endure the first wave. Now, what what right. you know, big concerns? Can we get the where are the what what data did they get? Can we get our systems back online safely? Are or at minimum, can we stop them from doing anything else beyond what you know what they've already done? We stop them from right. getting any other data, getting into any other data, and make sure you're getting off, you know, getting that uh, disconnected uh, properly and safely. And uh, you know, a big thing is preserving data for the private people to then do their investigation. Right. So I was I was thinking. Um mentioned the call, so I'm going to date myself, but I was immediately thought of Billy B. Williams and Ghostbusters. So who are you going to call? Your first call should be to your counsel um, because that's going to be your breach coach, the quarterback of your response. And it also ensures that to the maximum extent permitted by law, you will have the protection of the attorney-client privilege. Your second call is going to be your lawyer's call to your forensic firm. And that's the firm that's going to go into you know, we talked in our last episode about the metaphor of the home. Uh, imagine your computer system is a home. That's the investigator that's going to go into your home, check the security system, figure out which door, which window the threat actor came in, which which rooms in the house did they go to, what did they look at, what did they take. Uh, and if you do have cyber liability insurance, I think call number one is to your lawyer, call 1A is to your insurance company. You want to make sure that you provide that early notice. So we're at the end of the first wave uh, then, Nick, and let's say that your forensic team, and you may have a special ransomware team working as well as an organization, you're kind of wondering, uh, you're, you're, you're trying to struggle to restore your data from backups. You may or may not have all the data you need. You're thinking about whether you need to pay a ransom, but you're also at the same time thinking of who, if anyone, you need or may need to provide notice of the incident too. So let's say at the end of that first wave, your forensic team comes to you and says, uh, and I'll borrow on one of our early analogies, you know, we know that the analogy of the home, we know they didn't go to the living room or the dining room or the upstairs bedrooms, but we do know that they went into the kitchen and we know that they looked in the cupboard and that cupboard has maybe your, your customer's financial information. And let's assume that's going to include some PII. That's going to include some protected information by law of more than one state. And that is going to trigger 
door is potentially trigger your obligation to provide notice. So we're at the end of wave one. Talk to us now about wave two. At this point, again, yeah, your, your forensic expert is going to have done their investigation. They'll come back and they'll say two, two key words here, access and exfiltration. Uh, access is just what it is. Somebody accessed your data and, and the key being that the person who accessed it didn't have authority to do it. So it's unauthorized access. Uh, the other one, uh, exfiltration, fancy word for they took stuff. You know, the forensic expert will come back and say, somebody who shouldn't have been looking in the cupboard looked in the cupboard. And not only did they do that, they took some stuff from the cupboard. And, and now we have to start looking at our legal obligations. Where do those legal obligations come from? Two main sources being contract or, or law, statute. So, you know, the first thing we'll do is we'll ask our clients, is the data yours or is the data somebody else's and it was on your system? You know, like, are you a vendor for somebody and you have this data that you were holding for them using to do your business for that, for that customer of yours? You know? and, and then we'll have to look and see, are there any special requirements under any contracts? Some contracts nowadays, and of course, we encourage our clients to look at these issues very closely, will have notification requirements. You know, the law might say you have X amount of time to notify, but the contract might say something different. You know, we want a, a notification within two days, you know, 48 hours, 72 hours. So you're going to be looking at those contracts. You're going to be looking at notification obligations, potential identification obligations under those contracts, and, and figuring out, you know, do we owe anything to this? customer of ours. And then, you know, the second group you're going to be looking at are individuals. And if it's your data and you have individuals protected information, again, the three big categories being social security numbers, driver's license or other government ID numbers, or financial account information. And, and then you're going to look at where those people reside. Because data breach notification laws are not based on where your business is located based on where the impacted individual is located. Didn't we hear, um, one of our friends told us recently, uh, well, wait a second, I'm located in state A. Uh, these customers are in states B and C, so I'm not gonna worry about them. Yeah, um, unfortunately that really is not the way right. government regulators will look at that situation. And if it comes out that you didn't provide notification to individuals whose data you had, that uh, you know, the law says you have to protect, you're going to be on the wrong side of a regulatory investigation and wave three is going to be a lot bigger and come crashing down on you a lot harder than it would. <laughs> right, <laughs> and, and, but, and but purposes of wave two though, I mean, it's it may be obvious to most, but just to underscore this, because I think you and I were talking uh, yesterday, the day before, it was the first time I'd really heard this, um, be warned. if you have data for customers in 15 states, you are responsible for complying with the breach notification laws, not only of the state in which you do business, but in the other 14 states in which yeah. your customers reside. Very important. And uh, yeah. many of the, the state laws overlap, but there are some critical differences. So Nick, really important to identify in this wave two where your customers are, because those are those are going to give you the the statutory frameworks for your breach response. Yeah, absolutely. So again, you're you know you're looking at 
know, what data did you have that's protected? Where are those people located? And then you know, this is in wave two, this is where the lawyers are going to you know, be doing the majority of the work is looking at, okay, what are those states require? Um, and again, all states now protect those three big categories. Uh, different states might protect other categories. I think there are two states where just a name and a date of birth triggers a notification requirement. Uh, you know, some states now protect biometric information. So if for some reason you have fingerprints or face scans or that sort of data, um, and that stuff uh, might be protected under, differently under different laws. Um, how you go about notification, pretty similar under, under most state laws, but there can be differences there. Some will allow it by email, others, you know, it has to be a regular you know, old-fashioned letter sent in the mail, um, unless there are you know, other special circumstances. What has to be in the notice is a little bit different. Some states require that you include information on how the person can file a, a, their own claim with the state regulator. Um, some states require um, credit monitoring for a certain period of time. So, uh, you know, that, that in, in this wave two, we're going to be looking at all that. What states are involved, what people are involved, what data is involved, and from there, you know, who do we have to notify, what has to be in that notice, and what else do we have to do to comply with any state notification laws. Uh, New York, for example, if it's over a certain number of people, under over a certain number of, of New York residents involved, you have to notify credit monitoring. So all these different things we're going to be looking at at stage two. Oftentimes at this stage, we're going to be involving another vendor who will help with notification, uh, you know, sending the actual notification letters, in particular if you're dealing with a large number of individuals, you know, a couple thousand people, 10,000, 20, 30, whatever the number is. You, know, you bring in a vendor who, who does this uh, for their business and can help you more efficiently get those out than rather than trying to send them out yourself. You can bring in vendors who will set up 800 hotlines, which kind of gets us to the next step, but usually part of this step is setting up that hotline, setting up credit protection services for people to sign up for it. And that's all part of the second way, getting all that stuff in place. So you do the notification, these steps are in place. There may be some PR considerations at this point because you're going to be doing the notification. You bring in, you know, we, we help people with those you know, PR considerations, but there's obviously professionals to deal with that as well. How are we going to, you know, what message are we going to put out of what occurred and how we responded to it? Try to instill confidence back in our customers who trusted us with this data. And uh, you know, that's all occurring at this stage. Yeah. Another big swell of activity, a lot of, you know, a lot of decisions made a lot of time and effort spent now again after kind of that, that lull where we just investigate figuring out we're going to wade into wave three in a moment but before we leave wave two and nick and i know we've got some other ground to cover but i just want to ask you quickly we get often get questions from our clients in wave one especially wave two um about whether they should be contacting law enforcement uh, let's talk a little bit about that. One of the mo more common questions, should we call the FBI? Should we call uh, federal law enforcement? Um, obviously, it's a case-by-case -case situation. There may be certain law enforcement officers that are required to be notified at various stages. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? We typically encourage clients to notify law enforcement. Uh, it helps with a number of things. It can help with insurance requirements. Uh, some Insurers condition notifying law enforcement on paying a ransom. Uh, so, you know, clients will say, well, 
if we if we notify the FBI, do we just put it in their hands? And, and that's not the case. You, you make the report, you may or may not ever hear back from law enforcement um, you know, in response to um, you know, complaints submitted about this. But again, it gives you the protection of you've done it, you're, you're taking all the right steps, you're trying to do the right thing. There may be some benefit to it. In one case we had, uh, you know, the FBI happened to track down the, serve, the bad guy's server uh, that had some of, the, of our client's data on it. They were able to take down that server and tell our client, hey, we got this data and, and, and that was positive. Does that happen frequently? No. <laughs> but again, the, the law enforcement typically is not going to come in. They're not going to run your investigation. They may ask you some questions, what you're doing about it. They'll, they'll want to collect the data. There's been a big push recently, I think, um, from the you know the president down. You know they, they want to take away the appearance of the government being an enemy, you know, of a data breach response. Because I think that the early thinking was if we involve the government, they're going to be mad at us, <laughs> and they're going to try to fine us and, and all that. And I think there's there is uh, you know an active effort to move away from that sort of uh, an approach and have it be more of a partnership. Uh, government wants the data, they want to know what's going on, and they want to partner more with the private sector so that it's not so much a scary experience, but, you know, more collaborative effort. So, you know, I think our thinking is typically it, it doesn't hurt you to notify the FBI. There is, you know, you don't have to make a call even to, you know, a local office. There is an online way for you to make an uh, internet complaint. Uh, a website is very easy, efficient, effective, we've used it, and, uh, you know, local law enforcement, typically not so much, they're not really equipped to deal with these sort of issues, but, you know, uh, depending on the type of incident, maybe, maybe you file a report because it's going to protect you when you have to go deal with, uh, uh, you know, another customer or something, if money's been stolen, but, you know, it will depend, typically, though, I think our recommendation these days is at least at least make the report. Yeah. We've seen that issue come up. The one you just mentioned with another vendor, we've seen that come up in the context of B2B, business-to-business disputes in the cyber realm. So if you have a business that uh, is ultimately going to be responsible financially or otherwise for a breach, that business may turn to you and I mean, if you were at ground zero where the breach happened, they're going to want to know that you have reported the matter to law enforcement because they're going to want to maximize their protection to the yep. fullest extent possible. We should come back and talk about this concept and information sharing on another podcast. It's a very important subject that you alluded to the Biden administration. I think that's one of the things that everyone's really focused on now. It's a hot topic, but... Um, That'll be a teaser for another uh, another episode because I do want to set up wave three now. So let's say, Nick, at the end of wave two, we've determined that an organization does, in fact, have a notice and reporting obligation. So it's going to have to provide notice to some affected individuals in maybe in multiple states. And under those states' laws, it's also going to have to provide notice to the state's attorneys general. So let's assume we've done that. Talk to us now about wave three. What happens when this wave crests over your organization? So typically the way this will occur is you'll, you'll, re- 
receive a message from one of these attorney generals uh, or some other regulatory agency. Um, you know, if you're dealing with healthcare, um, CMS uh, is, is the, you know, the federal agency that you'll be dealing with and you report one of these breaches, you're going to receive a, a response back from them. And you know, you'll have submitted the report which contains some detail and, and then they're going to be asking, okay, well you gave us this, but we want to know these other things. How does the, um, the regulatory agency, in this context, the CMS, how do they contact the organization? Are they, is it a letter? Is it a phone call? How do you get that first notification? So typically, uh, when we're submitting the initial reports, we'll list ourselves as the contact point. So we'll either get a phone call or an email from one of the regulators saying, we, we got your report, we have some follow-up questions. And it's either then a phone call, a follow-up phone call, or typically, it'll be an email saying, uh, we got your report, here are other things we want to know about the organization, about the incident, about the response. Typically, they're going to ask, you know, what were your what policies and practices did you have in place? They may ask for copies of those uh, that existed at the time of the incident. They'll ask, uh, you know, for other details about how the incident was uh, discovered, you know, how the, the response was was conducted. Um, they may ask details about who was your forensic group, who was the ransomware uh, vendor involved, what type of, you know, if you didn't tell them in your initial report, what type of ransomware was, was involved. Um, so that's that's the way, you know, the government inquiries will typically go. There'll be a, a request for information, you'll respond to that, and then, again, typically it's another phone call. Uh, where they're asking you about all those details, about the policies, okay, you had this in place, did you make any changes after the fact? You know, right. You know, what, what lessons did you take away? Did you implement any changes? They'll ask you, about, you know, if there have been any other responses from concerned individuals. Um, you know, have you gotten any responses? Has anybody, you know, started any lawsuits, those sorts of things? And then it'll be, you know, one of two things will happen. They'll be satisfied that you know these things happen. You did what you you, know, you did as much as you could beforehand. You took all those preparatory steps we talked about in our you know, last episode, and you know, these things sometimes still happen. It's unfortunate, but we think you were you know above board in what you did and how you responded. And thanks. Or uh, they're going to be upset because you didn't do something along the way they think you should have. And then there's going to be a discussion about what is going to be the remedy for that. And then that'll involve looking at uh, their statutory authority. Um, most of these regulators have some ability to impose fines and or require uh, clients to take certain steps to protect their data going forward. And so there will be discussion along those lines, what sort of fines are you looking at, what sort of remedial steps do you have to take, and then typically we're involved in trying to negotiate uh, as best we can to, to say why whatever they've done should, should be lessened. <laughs> right. And you know what popped into my head as you were saying that, uh, Nick, I just wanted to follow up on it, is I feel like in today's climate, there are some organizations out there that rightly or wrongly think, you know, I don't really have to worry about any of this. 
because I have cyber liability insurance. So I have coverage and this is not going to be a problem. And what do we say? What would you say to an organization like that? That it's, it's not trying to flout the law, but really believes that it doesn't have to worry about having all of these written plans and procedures in place, doesn't have to worry so much about a cyber assessment, because at the end of the day, insurance will cover whatever losses may come as a result of a ransomware attack. Well, I would say two things to that. Uh, First, I would would defer to you on whether there could be some sort of exclusion under an insurance policy for not having certain protections or doing certain things. Um, But from a, a bigger standpoint, um, you know, there's, if this comes out, you know, this is, this is a public investigation. If there is some sort of public settlement, this, uh, you know, the attorney general, New York attorney general loves to issue press releases when they, you know, when they find somebody for this, think of that, the damage it's going to do to your business reputation. Right. And that's huge. And, you know, there's a stat and it's, it's an old stat these days, uh, from years and years ago, but at some point there was a stat that, you know, a good. 60% of small and medium businesses that experience a significant data breach event will go out of business because of that event. And, and that's not just, yes. you know, there's, there's certainly hard costs that an insurance policy will cover. You know, the, the investigation, doing the notification, the attorney's fees, defending a lawsuit, you know, those might be covered by your insurance policy. But if somebody has lost confidence in your business, it's no longer going to do business with well, that's a that's a big concern that insurance isn't going to cover it. And certainly, you want to protect against that. You want to be able to tell your customers, whether it's individuals or other businesses that you deal with, that hey, we take our you know protection of your data seriously. We want you to keep doing business with us and, and look at all the things we do to try to protect your data. So that's that's a huge consideration, uh, you know, well beyond insurance. Yeah. I'll just jump in since you put the question to me. I'll tell you I, what, what I thought of it, three things. Is first, um, you can't decouple good cyber hygiene, the preparation that we talked about in our first episode together from cyber insurance because the market for cyber insurance is hardening. And increasingly what we're finding is that organizations that don't make those preparations don't have the assessments, they don't know their, their, where their data is and where it's protected, and they don't have the other policies and procedures in place, they're not going to get cyber insurance, at least not right away. Secondly, as you say, there are some policy forms that will exclude coverage if you haven't maintained a safeguard that you indicated in your policy application you had. And third, uh, even if the policy doesn't exclude coverage, it's going to be that much more difficult for you to get a renewal of your cyber insurance if it turns out that the loss occurred as a result of your not having done something that you reasonably should have done. So that's a great point you make, um, and, and we should underscore that. Um, we've got a little time left, and I do want to get to the last two topics that you wanted to talk about, which are special issues with ransomware and special issues with email. So let's break those down and first talk about ransomware. What special considerations in breach response does the ransomware attack present? And I know we've seen some of these in the last six months. Uh, So tell our, our listeners and viewers what they should be thinking about in the context of ransomware specifically. The big thing for ransomware is you know, it's, it's a, what I would 
classify as a wave one issue, and that's backup systems. And you know, two big issues we've seen uh, in real life cases uh, recently are the backups uh, are they sufficiently isolated from the system so that if there is an attack, uh, you know, ransomware attack, those backup systems are still going to be viable. Um, and one of the things our forensic experts will tell us is these, these newer variants of ransomware, when, when, they, when they get into your system, they're searching for backups so that they can infect the backups. Because tip, your typical ransomware attack, it's not they get into your system and then immediately you know, encrypt everything and lock you out. They're going to in there in the system for hours or days and they're going to search for as much as they can before they actually launch the ransomware. So, uh, you know, our forensic people tell us they're, they're searching for those backups and if they can find the backups, they're going to encrypt the backups before they launch the, the attack on the, on the main system. So that by the time you're, you know, you find that they're there and you're shutting them down, your backup is, is essentially useless as well. So that's, you know, item number one is your is your is your backup system protected sufficiently from your main system so that they can't get into it and you still have this viable backup that can restore your system a lot quicker than if you don't. Um, yes. And then item two about the uh, backup systems is are they being uh, backed up frequently enough? Uh, we recently had a case where the backup was about two months old. And while it's great that they were able to get the system restored and had some of that information, they essentially lost two months worth of business that had been done. So making sure you're getting those updated, those backup systems updated frequently enough and that they're protected uh, are, are really key to being able to respond effectively to a ransomware. To take away one of the big, uh, you know, one of the big factors that the ransomware actors are relying on. They, they want you to you need your data. If you want this data, you have to pay us, or you're not going to be able to do business. So right. if you have a good backup system, uh, okay. protected, isolated, and frequently backed up, uh, you know, you're going to have a lot less pressure on you to, to even consider right. paying a ransom. We don't need to sure. pay that ransom for this reason anyway. Um, you know, we, we, we can get our systems back up and running with current data. So here's a really simple example before we shift to the last point, because I know you wanted to talk about special issues with email data. But here's a real life example with ransomware. So the ransom is $500,000. And your policy may or may not cover that. And we talked about potential coverage issues in a prior episode with Kelly Geary of Epic Insurance. But let's assume that your policy does cover. Um, if you have reliable backups, they're segregated on a different system, the backup was frequent enough so that you've essentially lost a day or only a few days, maybe even a week isn't the worst thing in the world. You're not going to have to pay that ransom. If, however, you don't have reliable backups, then you've got to confront the question of whether you want to pay the ransom, whether your policy covers payment of the ransom, whether you're legally permitted to pay the ransom because yeah. you could be the victim of a threat actor who is on the OFAC list or to whom you were otherwise prohibited um, from making a payment. So all of those 
issues can be eliminated if upfront you know you have reliable backups. So Nick, in the time we have left, we talked about ransomware and the importance of backups. Let's talk about the special issues involving email data uh, that come up in a ransomware attack. Yeah, so, so this is a, a wave two issue and it deals with identifying the individuals whose information you have. And in our last episode, we talked a little bit about um, you know tr- people transmitting protected information over email and you know if you're if you're doing that and if there is protected information in your email system and you have a breach and that breach impacts email boxes oftentimes what we have to do at, at stage two wave two of, of the response is now we're, we're running searches through an entire email box try to identify this potentially protected information. And if you start getting multiples of that, so you know, if you, you know, one, one email box, yeah, that's maybe doable. It's going to take some time and effort. Right. But if you start multiplying that, you're dealing with 10 email boxes, 15 email boxes, or 20. And you're dealing with a huge, you know, now you're dealing with huge volumes of data. And you have to take a whole extra step of uploading all that data into a data review platform. And even even though we would run various search terms to try to pare that data down, oftentimes you're still looking at a very large volume of data that somebody is going to have to put their eyes on to say, okay, this is actual, you know, EII versus oh, this is just a you know false positive that the search picked up, and that can really uh, you know expand not expense and the time of that wave two notification process because you know if you're looking at 200 gigabytes of data you know you're talking about million you know million plus files and even if you're able to pare that down by you know 70 percent that's still 300,000 documents that somebody is going to have to go through and you know that's that's either the, the client themselves and they're taking resources away from everyday running of their business or it's an attorney and they're paying that attorney's time um, and again it's all you know you want to be able to do this efficiently effectively and that's why you know we, we constantly preach to our clients if you if you have to take uh, private data through email make sure you're doing it in the, in the safest way possible you know securing that data with uh, sending it via secure links or securing the files themselves by password protecting them, uh, making sure that, you know, if the data is transmitted via email, you get it out of the email and make sure you're deleting it uh, frequently and you know, something you have to save, save it somewhere else that can be protected, encrypted, whatever. Uh, but just make sure that you're not just uh, having gobs of data, private data stored in email because we get to this stage, uh, you know, stage two, Viewing emails, uh, email boxes, it's just, it, it's a very expensive, time-consuming process, and it's not something anybody wants to have. So we've been talking about the waves of a data breach today, Nick, but in our first episode together, we talked about the four keys to preparing for a data breach. And it sounds like if you follow those four keys, you take those steps, the waves of the cyber incident, the data breach, are going to be a little more smooth and a little less costly than they might be if you hadn't undertaken all those protections. 
Absolutely. Again, you know, the, the wave analogy is I like great. It. You know, is, is it uh, is it is it Lake Erie uh, waves or is it Pacific Ocean waves? You know, it's and and, and that's the you know, that's going to be the key factor if you if you've prepared for it if you if you've done things to reduce. Again, we're never no one will ever tell you in the cybersecurity world that you can eliminate all risk. You're you're aiming to reduce the risks as much as possible, and in and in reducing those risks make this uh, you know, breach response program much easier. Uh, those waves are going to be much, much shallower. It's going to be a much smoother ride all the way through. And hopefully when you get to that third wave, maybe there's you know, no response at all from the regulators because you've done everything right. You're able to demonstrate it and uh, you know, just get through it that much quicker, more efficiently. A lot easier in a very stressful situation because no matter what, you know, if you're dealing with a data breach, it's a very stressful all right. Well, Nick Cesari, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of CyberSip. You're going to have to come back soon and talk about some of more of these topics in greater detail. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about the waves of the data breach today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to all of you. Like, comment, and share. We look forward to your thoughts. And we're back soon with another episode of CyberSip. The CyberSip Podcast is available on BarclayDamon.com, YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like, follow, share, and continue to listen. This material is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a legal opinion. No attorney-client relationship has been established or implied. Thanks for listening.